1: Welcome back, Denison Callahan. Our conversation with Jeff Van Gundy is brought to you by Comcast Business Class. He's our favorite NBA analyst, and we're not saying that just because he's on the air, with this Jeff Van Gundy joins us on the AT&T hotline, AT&T 4G LTE. Good morning, Jeff, John, and Jerry here in Boston. How are you? I'm
0: doing fine. How are you
1: guys? Very good. Very good. Uh, you know, after two games in this series, after the two games in Miami, the question was, gee, is this series going to go four or five games? Well, clearly it's going Six. What has been the sea change in the way the Celtics have played, other than location, Jeff, that has turned this thing around into a three-game series now?
0: Well, I thought they, uh, for the most part, defended a lot better uh, throughout the last uh, two games. I thought their rebounding was uh, noticeably better, particularly in game three. They got to the free-throw line. um, And I thought, you know, Paul Pierce, even though he didn't shoot particularly well game three, um, he got better quality shots, uh, more active and involved. Um, I just thought they have, uh, you know, played really good basketball. Rondo was great uh, really since game one. And um, he's been the best player on the floor.
2: Mm. Hey, uh, Jeff, uh, do you expect to see Bosch tomorrow night in Miami? And if so, what, what kind of factor, how big a factor will he play?
0: I really don't have a clue. You know, I don't. I don't know. I know this. He's been out over three weeks now, and it's hard to reincorporate somebody in uh, back into the game, particularly when you have no idea what he's capable of. From a standpoint of he hasn't, they haven't been practicing live, so he hasn't been getting a lot of live repetitions. Uh, they're going to be coming into the great unknown if he does play tomorrow, and. I think those abdominal strains, as probably everybody knows, um, you know, are very difficult injuries. So uh, I would su- suspect if he is even close to playing, guys, that he would play tomorrow. But um, I have no inside knowledge. Would it
2: uh, obviously? Garnett has had a terrific series, a great postseason. Uh, would he be most most important to the Heat? Just playing defense and, and putting a body on Garnett. Is that what they miss most without Bosch?
0: Well, that's the thing. Like last night, uh, their first half defense was uh, poor at best. Uh, The Celtics played great offensively, but Bosch was not going to give them that defensive force that like a Garnett coming back for the Celtics would give. Right. Um, But offensively, It's a much more difficult pick-and-roll combination to defend. Uh, He can knock down the 18, 19-footer consistently well. And I just think their pick-and-roll game is much more difficult to handle if Bosch is involved as the screener.
1: Jeff Van Gundy, speaking of Kevin Garnett and his defense, can you break it down to us in terms of what he does almost better than anybody else on the help defense and how he is able to – create some chaos for the opposing team almost on every single position?
0: Well, it's very rare that you find big guys who can defend their own position well. You know, as a good individual defender uh, and is also an exceptional help defender. Usually, uh, a guy is far superior at one to the other. Mm-hmm. Garnett, on the other hand, does both. And he does both even within the same game. like He's able to guard his own guy. Now, in this series, he really doesn't have a matchup that they're going to to defend one-on-one. If Bosch comes back, maybe that's what he'll be doing. But he can guard his, his own guy and still come back and help and be active in the help defense and still be, on top of that, a terrific defensive rebounder. Now, Garnett right now at this point in his career is not a – uh, a real active offensive rebounder. In fact, Boston is one of the worst offensive rebounding teams in the league, and that's why Petrus's two late offensive rebounds in overtime mm. were so dramatic. But Garnett is still a, a, a superior defensive rebounder.
2: Uh, well, uh, Jeff, uh, on two plays at the end, did you uh, did you think LeBron made the right move, or should he have taken? Petrus when he kicked it to Haslam on the last second shot, do you think he should have taken Petrus to his left, maybe tried to get in the rim? I know Garnett was going to help. And did you like uh, the shot from Wade, or do you think he should have tried to get to the rim in the, in, the, in the final play?
0: The most indefensible shot in basketball late historically has been the pull-up jump shot. You know, that mid-range pull-up before the defense can get its help there. Taking the ball to the rim, you don't see a lot of calls made at that point in the right, game. Right. So it's the, it's the pull-up and then the second shot, to me, that is most dangerous. So James's isolation was completely disrupted by poor spacing. Mario Chalmers, uh, if you go back and look at the replay, is running into his space, bringing Keon Dooling into the picture, and then Garnett uh, coming up into that free-throw line area to take away that pull-up game from James. So Haslam then moved to an open area. The pass was deflected. It wasn't a a great pass, so it hits the floor first, which gives Garnett more time to recover, force Haslam to put it on the ground. That was very well defended by Boston. Uh, I didn't think great spacing uh, by Miami, Uh, but I think James to pass, that was really what he had left if he didn't take the three-pointer before he put the ball down on the ground. As far as Wade, he obviously was sizing it up to try to go for the win. He's the best in, in the league right now at driving hard, particularly to his left, showing the shot, getting a guy to bite on the shot fake, and then be able to either create contact or get a quality shot off. He did that on the last play. He's not a great three-point shooter but that shot was online, and I thought he got an exceptional shot off and just missed it.
1: Jeff, I'm looking at my notes that I took uh, watching the telecast last night, and I see a 9 nothing Miami run. I see an 18-4 Celtic run. I see a 15-1 Miami run. On and on it goes. Do you have a clear understanding of why that is so prevalent in the NBA and certainly in playoff basketball as well? I mean, it's got to be more than momentum. How is it that a team can, can get off to the kind of start the Celtics do and then suddenly turn around, and I guess part of it was the 9 nothing run, KG sat down. But do you have a clear idea as to why runs seem to kind of dominate the day in the NBA?
0: Not really, but it's, I would say it's usually personnel-driven, and at times, like you mentioned, home court driven, but Miami in the second half, as, as badly as the Celtics overwhelmed Miami in the first half with their energy and their effort and their aggression, I thought Miami uh, in the second half just shut Boston's water off uh, from a defensive standpoint. It was hard for Boston for a long period of time there uh, to get a quality look and... Um, I thought Boston to regather themselves in overtime, uh, Pierce fouling out to take that body blow, withstand it, and come up with the win uh, was terrific mental toughness on their part.
1: Hey, one uh, national NBA analyst thought that both Paul Pierce and LeBron James' final fouls that fouled them out of the games were bad calls. I don't know how he could look at the Pierce thing and think that wasn't a foul. Do you agree with the uh, the LeBron James Final foul, being a good call?
0: Uh, no, I thought that was a foul on Petrus uh, pulling him down, mm-hmm. or at at worst a no call. Let them both get up and play. Listen, I, I'm for more fouls. Uh, you know, seven, seven, right? Seven fouls. I'm for uh, sneezing, so I don't see Paul Pierce running into Battier <laughs> on an inconsequential. They, they didn't have the ball. You know, I, I I'm I'm just not a fan of watching the last plays in that game. It was such a dramatic, hard hard competed, hotly contested game with the, those two guys on the bench. Now, some of the fouls you know that people want to ignore you know have to be called. But I could see where a fan of both teams would not have liked the Pierce foul, or the James foul because it didn't involve the ball yet. It was just, you know, guys jostling for position. Yeah, if
2: that, But if it happened in the first quarter, Jeff, you probably wouldn't even comment on it. We wouldn't even bat an eye. Do you think it's – Oh, you ex-
0: would on the James one. The James one was, you know, that was – Highly That questioned. would have been a bad foul no matter. But really? th- here's the thing. Yeah, like James – like Beatrice – You know, pulled him down a little bit, which, uh, you know, he flopped back. uh, Listen, you can miss that call. That's a hard thing to regulate, um, uh, trying to determine what's a flop and what's not. But I would say this. People who want the game called exactly the same in the first quarter and the fourth quarter, I know I don't want refereeing late in those games. There has to be a different level of certainty on those calls. In the first quarter, you're trying to establish, to me, a tone, uh, get the game called in the right manner, let everyone know the amount of contact that's going to be allowed. In the final three or four minutes of a, of, a, of a close game, I think referees have to have certainty that the play has an impact uh, directly to giving a team an advantage.
2: What, what about the superstar calls? Would you call it different because that's LeBron James or that's Paul Pierce? Would oh you...
0: No, 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 no. Uh, who's, who's in the game doesn't matter to me. It's, it's the certainty of the call, I think, late, that you want to make sure of. There's no setting the tone. There's no um, having the game called exactly the same. If you've done your job to me as an officiating crew, the, how you've called the game throughout the game uh, sets the tone that everybody knows that you don't, have to, you don't have to clean up anything late because the game has been managed well right from the start.
1: Hey, Jeff, final question for me. Uh, early in the fourth quarter, the Celtics had the ball out of bounds underneath their own basket with .9 seconds left to get a shot off. Rajon Rondo, I think using his head and knowing the rules, threw the ball off of Haslam's foot, and got 14 seconds back on the shot clock. Do you think many players, most players, some players, or only a few players in the NBA would, A, understand that rule and be able to put it to use to his advantage that quickly in that situation? Because Doc has forever told us Rajon Rondo is not only the smartest player on his team, he said he may be one of the smartest players in the entire NBA.
2: Or do you think it was a bad call because he didn't actually kick, it just kind of hit his foot?
0: Well, I did not have a great angle, even from where I was, you know, seeing it on replay. Um, so I don't know if it was a bad call. You have to intentionally kick the ball. Mm-hmm. If it's just thrown off your foot, it's a play-on situation. If he was that far ahead of the game, knowing there was only .9, and he didn't have a great pass inbounds, and he did, like you said, try to draw a kicking uh, uh, you know, violation to get 14 on the clock, praise to him because that is exceptional basketball IQ that translates into an extra possession. And um, so, so many people um, overlook basketball IQ as a huge component of winning and losing in the NBA. And I think Rondo, uh, and rightfully so, gets a lot of credit from Doc Rivers for his basketball IQ. And Eric Spolster gives LeBron James... Uh, that same credit for Miami. So it's a big component, and if he did it...
2: Well, un- unfor- unfortunately, Jeff, it's the same guy who uh, did the little kick gir- girly kick at Battier when when his team's up 18 and gets a technical foul. But that's just Rondo. That's just the complete package. Hey, before you go, Jeff.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I think people have to understand that when you're talking about greatness as a player, that doesn't mean there's going to be no flaws. And you have to accept the whole package. You just can't pick and choose what a player is. So, yeah, would you like Rondo not to have that edge where he maybe throws the ball at a referee or kicks an opponent? Absolutely, and rightfully so. But it's also that edge that makes a guy who came into the league as a question mark, could he help the Celtics win a championship, develop into the most important Celtic you know, four or five years later. So you do have to take the 99% good of a guy like Rondo or any great player in this league and accept that there's 1% that you're always going to look at and say, I wish he could change that.
2: All right. Uh, The series is tied. You know that. I'm pretty sure you're paying attention. 2-2. Back to Miami. Miami has home court. But do you think Boston has accomplished what it had to after four games? The pressure is building, and the more pressure the – The more pressure there is, it seems the more vulnerable LeBron and the Heat are. Would you agree?
0: Well, I think, obviously, you know, Game 2 is one that Boston would have liked to have. Uh, And, obviously, Miami, you know, two overtime games. The series is exceptionally close, other than Game 1 and Game 3. Those Games 2 and 4 were exceptionally close. I, I think Boston... I don't think they need any to add pressure to Miami. I think right now the way the teams are playing and with Bosh's absence, the teams are very close in talent. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to Boston's mentality. Are they happy to be at 2-2? Two and two? Are they energized because we can really win it now? And I'm also uh, looking forward to seeing Miami's response um, to this bit of adversity. When they were in the Indiana series down 2-1 and down 9 in Game 4 at halftime, they responded in a big way. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, if they can put that back together
2: again as well. You should know, Jeff, that Rondo is never happy. You can't say, is Boston happy? They're not happy. Garnett and Rondo, these guys, they can maintain their edge with the best of them. Hey, what's the chances next year you go back to a three-man booth and there's two Van Gundys with Breen?
0: I don't know. I have no idea what Stan's going to do, if he's going to coach or if he's going to take a year off or try uh, the wacky world of broadcasting. and uh, I'm not really sure, but I know, I know this guys He's uh, very bright, and uh, he'll have many options in front of him. Uh, he'll just have to decide what's best for him and his family.
1: I think that would be broadcast gold, it you would. and your brother side-by-side side doing
0: analysis. Yeah, he'd be beating me up verbally <laughs> yeah. like he has his whole life. So he'd that'd
2: be to, great. Like Breen, would have to be in the middle, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Arbitrator, right. right?
0: Exactly. And uh, um, we'd be, you know, he'd have to referee, you know, Mike's a, a referee lover and sympathizer, so he would have to be <laughs> like uh, being in the middle of us, referee that, and then if we ever disagreed with a call, he would have to be, you know, protecting his beloved officials.
1: Hey, Jeff, appreciate the time this morning. Safe flight. We'll be watching again tomorrow night. Thanks for the time this morning. Right. Jeff That's Van Gundy okay. with DNC on the AT&T Outline, AT&T 4G LTE. Jeff Van Gundy was brought to you by Comcast Business Class. Switch to Comcast Business Class for Internet, voice, and TV solutions. Don't wait. Call 800-391-3000 to switch now.